would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John, we're looking at chapter 5 today. Uh, the page reference in the bulletin is related to the red Bibles and the chairs around you, if you'd like to use those. 1 John chapter 5, we're going to be looking at the first five verses. Now, before I read this, I just want to uh, put something in your mind to be looking for as we read these five verses. Uh, John is uh, using a, a very particular technique here in these verses, and it has a very technical name. Uh, we call it sandwiching. Uh, basically, what he's doing is he's telling us about faith in the first verse. He's telling us about faith in the fifth verse. And in between those two uh, sandwiched pieces of bread of faith, he talks about love and he talks about obedience and he talks about victory, showing us the need for faith and what faith looks like. Listen as I read to you from chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be present in our midst right now, here in these moments, and that you would open our eyes to see what you want us to see from this portion of your word. Teach us, Father. Teach us how we can know we have eternal life. Teach us about what faith is and what it should look like in our life. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was November of 1985. A... New song was released on the radio and on MTV. It was the second number one hit of someone who wasn't very well known at the time, a woman named Whitney Houston. By many people's estimations, Whitney Houston had one of the most uh, greatest voices in all of pop music. The song that she released was her second number one song, How Will I Know? Now, for those of you that are in your mid-40s to late-50s, the song started playing in your head just that moment, and I apologize. But it was a song that became one of her biggest songs, one of the songs that really told the world about how she could sing. Uh, it was this past week on YouTube. It had over 120 million views. It's a song that Whitney sings about asking, how will I know if this boy that I like will like me back? How will I know if he really loves me? I say a prayer with every heartbeat. I fall in love whenever we meet. I'm asking you what you know about these things. How will I know if he's thinking of me? I try to phone, but I'm too shy, can't speak. Falling in love is so bittersweet. This love is strong. Why do I feel so weak? Oh, tell me, how will I know? Don't trust your feelings. How will I know? How will I know? Love can be deceiving. How will I know? 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 I say a prayer. How will I know? Oh, 
How will I know I fall in love? How will I know? Hey, how will I know? I'm asking you. Now, it sounds like she really wanted to know. But here's the thing. There are things in this life that we want to know how. And I would suggest to you that the most important question that we can know and that we can want to know and that we need to know is, do we have eternal life? Do you know that you have eternal life? The Apostle John wrote an entire letter to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus in the first century who were asking that question. How do we know? John, at the end of his letter, passage we'll come to in a couple of weeks, just a page, uh, probably just a page in your Bible, if you turn a page further to chapter 5, verse 13, he tells them, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This little church, this little gathering of God's people in the first century had been going through an incredibly difficult season of life. Their church had been in upheaval. False teachers had come into the church, had infiltrated the church. And a number of the people of a church had been confused by what they were saying. And they were led away out of the church. And now this this group that was left was asking, how do we know? How do we know if we're right? How do we know if God truly does love us? How do we know that we have eternal life? And John wrote them this letter. So that they would know that they have eternal life. He tells them throughout this letter we've been seeing over and over and over again. He tells them that you'll know when three particular things come together. Faith, love, and obedience. And not just a general faith or a generic faith. But a faith in something in particular. Or rather someone in particular. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that faith, John has told us over and over again throughout the first four chapters, that faith must be active. It must be a working faith. It must be a faith that loves the Lord and loves fellow Christians and obeys the Lord's commands. And when all of that comes together, God's people have the hope and encouragement that they indeed will overcome the world. John has said that over and over again through these first four chapters. And now he's going to give them the summary of it in these five verses as he says it all again. So today I want us to look at two things. First of all, if you want to know that you have eternal life, John says you need to have faith. And secondly, John says that if you want to know that you have eternal life, you must have faith, but it must be a faith that is working. So let's look at these two things. First of all, if you want to know you have eternal life, you need to have faith. Look at the beginning and end of this passage once again. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And then in verse 5, he says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Everyone who believes and the one who believes... That little word believes is the Greek word pisteo. It means to believe, to trust, to have faith. John is reminding these people who have faith, who do believe, that it's not just a generic faith. 
It is a faith that must be anchored in something that is true and right. It has an object. Our faith is to have an object. It is that we are to believe, he says in verse 1, that Jesus is the Christ. And in verse 5, that Jesus is the Son of God. John is talking about a faith that has a specific object. It is a faith in something particular. Not just Jesus in some general way. Not just Jesus as a role model. Not just Jesus as a moral teacher or as an example. But he says, we believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one who has long been promised. He is the Messiah who had been prophesied in the Old Testament. He is the one who is the fulfillment of the promise that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden of one who would come and save the people and crush the head of the serpent. This is Jesus the Christ. This is the historical Jesus, the one who came in the flesh, who lived on this earth, who was crucified, who was died and who was buried and who rose again from the grave and ascended and who will come again. That's the one that we have faith in. It is Jesus the Christ. But he says in verse five, we are to have faith in Jesus, who is the son of God. He is the God in the flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the one who is fully God and fully man. John says if we want to know that we have eternal life, we must have faith. And that faith must be specifically in Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Son of God. Now by saying this to us, John is giving us a couple things to meditate on that are important. First... Just having a generic, generalized faith, just being a a spiritual person, isn't enough. What John says here goes against the notion in the world today that the important thing is that you just have faith in something. That you just believe something, anything. Some of you are old enough to remember the 1969 New York Mets. They were... Not supposed to do well that season. They, they were not supposed to win the pennant, but they did. They weren't supposed to win the World Series, but they did. And as they got closer and closer to the end, they started to be called the Miracle Mets. And the slogan of the fans throughout the season was, you got to believe. And that's the slogan for so many in the world today. You just got to believe something. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you have faith in. But you just got to believe in something. And John says that that will give you no certainty in this life and certainly no certainty in death. What gives us certainty of eternal life is having faith, not just generally, but specifically in Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Son of God. A second implication of John telling us this is he's telling us that this this Jesus that he's talking about is a person. He's talking about a personal relational faith in Jesus Christ, a belief that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he came into this world. He became one of us. He knows us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our temptations. He knows what it's like to live with pain and sorrow and weariness and to have needs. He is the Christ. 
He not only endured this life, but he went to the cross and he endured the cross. And the scriptures tell us why he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And what is that joy? It is you. The joy that kept the Lord Jesus on the cross, enduring the wrath of God being poured out on him was for your sake. This is not some impersonable, unknowable deity, but this is the person of Jesus Christ. It is a relational God that we are to have faith in. To know that we have eternal life, we must have faith. And that faith has an object. And the object of that faith is Jesus the Christ. Jesus, the Son of God. But I want you to notice that John also says here that there's a source for our faith. And it's not us. Notice what he says again in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now let's just do a quick grammar lesson for a second here. If you look, there are actually two different verbs and two different tenses of these verbs. The first one is speaking about the one who believes. That is in the present tense. It, it means something that is ongoing, something that is current and present and continuing. But then we get this word, has been born of God. And that's in the perfect tense. That means it's a past event that has present consequences. And so what John is saying here in this verse is, you believe now, presently, because you have been born of God in the past. The faith that we need to have in order to know that we have eternal life is something that is given to us. Remember what John said in chapter 4, verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's not that we loved God first. God loved us first. We think also about what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, this passage that is so well known and yet so poignant. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Not mostly dead, not partly alive. John, or Paul, Paul says, we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The faith that we need to know in order to have that we have eternal life is something that only God can give us. It is a gift. It is free grace. Now, if you're here, you're online and you are one who knows that you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this truth, this reality should make you wake up every single morning with thanksgiving and amazement and humility in your heart and in your mind. That the God of the universe has given you faith 
such that you can believe you have eternal life. And if you are here or you are online and you know that you don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to know that the faith that you need is not something that you can conjure up within yourself. It is not something that you can create or earn or merit. It is something that you must humbly ask for from the Lord God Almighty. And here's the good news. He gives it freely. So if we want to know that we have eternal life, we must have faith. Faith in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. A faith that comes to us from God Himself. But I want you to notice... It is a faith that is working. But we remember what James said in his letter in the Bible. What good is it, my brothers, if someone has, says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's what John is getting at here in John, 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. The faith that we have in Jesus as the Christ and as the Son of God, the faith that has been given to us by the Lord, is an active faith. It is a working faith. You can see what he says at the end of verse 1 and verse 2, that it's a loving faith. Everyone who has, believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Did you notice he mentions two different kinds of love there? Or one kind of love, but two different directions? One vertical a love for the Lord, a love for our Father, and one horizontal, a love for those who have been born of God, for the children of God, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. He speaks about a faith that loves the Father, not a cold, distant, disconnected faith, but a loving, relational faith, a personal faith that loves our God, and a faith also that loves those who have been born of God, other believers are fellow Christians. We've talked a lot in the last couple of weeks about what our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ should look like. Uh, John has been talking about that throughout particularly chapters 3 and 4. And we've spent some time talking about the fact that the love that we are to have for our brothers and sisters in Christ should mirror the love that God has for us. That the love that we have experienced should then be the love that we share with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we've talked about the fact that God's love for us is a love that is active. It is sacrificial. It is free. It is persistent. It is tangible. And so our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ should be those things as well. Last week we talked about the fact that God's love for us is full of both grace and truth. And so our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ should be both gracious truth and truthful grace. Let me give you another biblical aspect of love. This time from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Did you hear what he said? That the love that we are to have for one another is to be an earnest love. That means a love that does not waver. A love that does not stop. A love that does not give up. 
And it is not just to be an earnest love, but it is a love that covers a multitude of sins. That's the love that we've experienced from our Father in heaven. A love that has never let us go. A love that is truly earnest. And a love that has covered our sins through the blood of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter and John are telling us that we must have a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ that is constant and fervent and patient and long-suffering, that absorbs sin, that covers sin, that doesn't take offense. We start to see this and feel the weight of it. We understand the Bible's not talking about a love that we are to have for one another that is a cheap love or an easy love because the love that God has for us is not cheap and easy. It was sacrificial And so our love for one another must be sacrificial and costly as well. Our faith is to be a working faith. It's to be a loving faith. But notice he also talks about an obedient faith. Again, looking back in the passage in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. The faith that it knows it has eternal life is an obedient faith. It is a faith that obeys the commandments of the Lord. The love that we have for the Lord is a love that shows itself in growing obedience to the word of God. Now, certainly when John wrote this, he wasn't thinking only about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about all the commandments of the Lord throughout the scriptures. But it certainly included the Ten Commandments. So let's look at one of those in particular for just a moment. Given that the month of January is typically a time when many churches and Christians around the world think about the sanctity of human life, we naturally think about the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And Jesus teaches us in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount, that the Ten Commandments mean so much more than just the literal outward keeping of what they say. Our own Westminster Larger Catechism does an incredible job of taking the commandments and unpacking them for us, showing us the breadth of them, showing us the depth of them, of the, of the, the duties that are required in the commandments and the sins that are forbidden in the commandments. Listen to the Westminster Larger Catechism question on the sixth commandment. What are the duties required in the sixth commandment? The duties required in the sixth commandment are... All careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. By just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit. A sober use of meat, drink, medicine, sleep, labor, and recreations. By charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness. Peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior. Forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, and returning good for evil. Comforting the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent. They go on and and the next question is say, what are the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment? 
The sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in the case of public justice, lawful war or necessary defense. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of the preservation of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire for revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. When we talk about the sanctity of human life, we usually think about abortion, and we certainly should. Over 64 million lives lost over the last 49 years. We need to be persistent in prayer for the end of abortion in our city and in our country and around the world. We need to pray for New Life Family Services who are on the front line here in Rochester of helping people choose life. We need to be financially supporting things like New Life Ministries and and missionaries who are speaking about life into our culture. But we also must see that the sanctity of human life is about so much else as well. Taking care of ourselves physically and spiritually. Charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild and courteous speeches and behavior. Forbearance and readiness to be reconciled. Patient, bearing and forgiving of injuries and returning good for evil. Comforting the distressed, protecting and defending the innocent. And putting off sinful anger and hatred and envy and desire of revenge and all excessive passions and distracting cares. And this is just one commandment of the Lord. This is what true and genuine faith does. It obeys and keeps the commands of the Lord. And I want you to notice what John says at the end of verse 3. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. They are not burdensome. That doesn't mean that they're always easy. But what it means is that they are not heavy on our souls. And why aren't the commands of the Lord heavy on our souls? Well, we contrast it with the burdensome laws of the Pharisees. And we hear what Jesus said about that. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The laws of the Lord are not burdensome to our souls. They are light to our souls because it is the Lord himself who gives us the strength and the ability to do them. And in addition, listen to what John says. The commandments, his commandments, God's commandments, the Lord's commandments are not burdensome. Why? For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We are not only to have a loving faith and an obedient faith, but we as God's people are to believe that ours is a faith that overcomes the world. 
four times in verses four and five, John uses the little word that means overcomes or victory. It's the Greek word nikao in the verb form or nike as a noun. Nike. It's where the company Nike got their name. Overcome. Victory. And of course, Nike's slogan is what? Just do it. But for those who have faith in Jesus Christ, who are loving the Lord and their fellow Christians, and who are obeying the commandments of the Lord, we are the true Nike. We are the true overcomers, and the victory is ours, and we have such a better slogan, not just do it, but believe it and do it. Believe the good news of the gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in His redeeming work for you. Believe in the love of a Father that has been for you since before the foundation of the world. A love that is active and sacrificial and free and persistent and tangible, full of grace and truth. A love that is earnest for you and that has covered your sins through the blood of Christ. Believe that gospel, believe that grace, believe that love, and then go out and do it. Live it out. Love the Lord. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do the commandments of the Lord. I want you to think of it this way. If Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death once and for all, there is nothing greater to be conquered. So we can have a genuine hope In our victory over the world, because Jesus has already overcome the greatest obstacles. Whatever challenge or difficulty or trial or thorn or burden that we may be called to endure in this life, we know that a day is coming when it will be gone forever. There is a point coming when what we deal with here and now will feel like nothing to us because it pales in comparison to what's awaiting us. We already have victory and we will have victory. And because of that being true, it must change how we live today. Let me finish with just a couple of examples how the fact that we, over, that we will overcome the world should impact how we live today. Some of us may be the kind of people who feel the weight and the heaviness of the world. And it can feel overwhelming, especially these days. But that is not a burden or weight that we will carry forever. In fact, Jesus has already overcome that burden and weight. And one day we will be free of it forever. So that truth and that reality should impact how we live today. Some of us struggle with lust and pornography. And that too can feel overwhelming, like it's never going to be conquered. But that burden and that feeling of weight is not something that we will carry forever. Jesus has overcome that sin and burden. And one day we will know what it's like to never be tempted and to never give in to that temptation again. And that reality should change how we live today. Some of us are the kind of people that particularly 
uh, are bothered by the differences that genuine believers in Christ have today, whether theological, philosophical, differences about how we manage the life, uh, life in this world. And those differences can feel heavy and they can feel burdensome, but we don't feel that weight forever. Jesus has already overcome all of our differences and he is preparing a place for all of his people to live together in perfect peace and unity and love. And that reality, that truth must influence how we live now in this life. After all, John's not just simply making this up or pulling it out of thin air, that we are overcomers. John was the one that heard Jesus say in John chapter 16, In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And because he has, we know that we are overcomers as well. How do you know? How do you know? How do you know that you have eternal life? John says you must have faith. It is not just some generic faith. It is a faith that is anchored in Jesus as the Christ. Jesus, the Son of God. It is a faith that comes to us from outside of us. It comes from God Himself. And that faith, that we must have to know that we have eternal life is an active faith. It is a working faith. It is a faith that loves the Lord, loves brothers and sisters in Christ, and obeys the commandments of the Lord. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be full of hope and encouragement because that faith is a faith that overcomes the world. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for those in this room who know that they have faith in you, but it is a faith that is shaken, a faith that is seeming, seemingly weak, a faith that perhaps is just keeping its head above water. And I pray, Father, that you would encourage all of us that are in that place and that you would fill us with hope and encouragement and that you would strengthen our faith through your word and through the Lord's Supper. That you would give us a faith that is founded upon our Savior. And that as we meditate on the reality of all that He has accomplished, and not only what He has accomplished, but what is coming for us in the future, that you would fill us with the strength that we need. And Father, I pray for those in this room or perhaps online who know that they don't have faith. I pray, Father, that you would be at work in their hearts and their minds, that you would open their eyes to see the truth of your word and that you indeed would give them faith even today. Help them to cry out to you in need. And we pray that you would answer that prayer with your free grace, your free faith. All this we pray in the name of our Savior, the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus. Amen.